asked me to look at John 15 and tell me what I saw jump out. I told him endurance was something I really felt strongly about and could talk a lot about. And I also said joy would be something that I could possibly do, uh, but I don't really feel good about it. A week later, he told me, you're preaching on joy. I said, great. That doesn't make me happy. But here we are. And like Amanda said, uh, something I felt this morning was that the Lord really wanted to restore childlikeness back to us. And actually, the, the thing that kind of triggered that for me was I was talking with my wife, Kristen, this morning, and she mentioned how uh, she has been feeling almost like a longing to, to I mean, feel what she initially felt when she got a fire for the Lord and actually uh, was full of conviction, conviction and burning for the things that he does and the things that she's uh, and wanting to see other people do that too. And how she would even write letters that rejected that strongly. And what the enemy did was he wanted to take a root of that and say, you know, like what you have to say or share is not legitimate. It's not real. It doesn't make an impact. And she's worked through that. <laughs> I think she's crying right now. That's great. <laughs> Didn't mean to do that. Sorry. <laughs> uh, but the Lord wants to restore that. He wants to restore a childlikeness of joy and happiness in him. And I'm very intentionally using that word happiness that I'm going to unpack a little more tonight. Uh, I want to read a couple of verses. Actually, no, let's go straight to John 15 first. I'm going to read this. This is what we've been in. I don't know if we're in it next week or not. Starting in verse 1, it says, I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. So I'm seeing how much we can unpack in this first 10 verses. I mean, there's, like, I, I don't know how long we've been doing this series, but it's been a while, and I feel like we've covered a lot. And then I, just meditating on this this week, I'm like, oh, there's like two or three things we could actually talk more about. And it's like, okay, so why? Why is this so heavy to Jesus? This, I mean, this whole John 15 through 17 discourse that he has. And he says, so that my, my joy may be in you and that your joy would be full. 
So the question I want to throw your way to start and to really uh, contemplate more as the week goes on, how good do you believe God is that he would make you fully joyful? Or maybe, how good do you think he is? He's actually a good enough God to make you happy. And happy is kind of a loaded term because we, when we think of like a happy Christian, they're probably like an ignorant Christian, right? <laughs> like they don't know all the problems of the world. They, they grew up probably a, a pastor's kid and everything was like rosy for them and they got their way in a lot of things. So that's a happy Christian, i.e. not a Christian who has really experienced the world or suffering. And I think the Bible disagrees with that. So that's where we're going to get into. So before we unpack that a little bit in Scripture, I want to talk about happiness and joy. What do I mean when I say happiness or joy? Because it can kind of mean a lot of different things. Today, I've heard a lot of teaching, and I've actually taught it myself, I used to, was that uh, joy is more like contentment. So in marriage, we're promised joy or contentment. So there's going to be, you know, rough patches, rough times, fill in the blank, whatever is like a long-term thing. God wants you to have joy. He's not wanting you to have happiness. He doesn't promise happiness. Those are the things that, like, they feel good because I, I like, I kind of rationalize it in my head. Okay, I, I buy that because I've experienced things in life that aren't happy when I wanted them to be, but I know I should be in it. So it kind of makes sense. But Getting into scripture a little bit, we have a problem. So, uh, Psalm 4-7. This is actually when things change. Actually, no, I'm going to back up. C.S. Lewis and the Weight of Glory was when I first started reconsidering this idea. Uh, I thought that happiness was the problem in all of my uh, sin addictions, uh, discontentment in life, um, quick anger. Like, it's because this thing isn't making me happy. So therefore, like, that thing needs to change. But what I think the scripture wants to reveal to us is actually that uh, the problem is not happiness, but me. Here's what C.S. Lewis says in The Weight of Glory. If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. And then when I found Psalm 4, and I'm just going to read verse 7 here. It's kind of a, it's kind of a, I don't know if it would be categorized as a lament psalm, but it is a bit more prayer-like, the whole seven verses, eight verses, I think. But the kicker is this. David is talking to God. He says, you have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. So what we do is we typically categorize happiness as like the worldly happiness. 
things that I'm happy when I get stuff or things or when relationships go right, when my marriage is going swell, when I got the job I want, fill in the blank, right? But what David actually does here is when he, he takes joy and he says, I got a little joy when the worldly things, what we would say that that's what makes us happy, when grain and wine abound. We would say that was happiness. When grain and wine abound, that, was, I, that made me happy. He says, you have given me more of that thing that I had when I did have that momentary earthly stuff. So David's putting it on the same level here. But what he's saying is that grain and wine abound, that's a shadow. It's not a fake happiness or it's not a fake delight or a fake joy. It's just not as much as what my God does. That's why I think C.S. Lewis said we are far too easily pleased. I know this, this contradicts like obviously a lot of like what we hear taught in culture. And that's fine with me. I'm honestly like not too, I'm not too caught up in uh, going on a crusade on trying to redefine happiness and joy. Uh, but what I do think is there's value in really thinking about where you get your source of joy and where you get your source of happiness. Because we, we kind of associate happiness more as a feeling and joy more as a resolution. And I think that's where God wants to say, no, I will give you that feeling of happiness. Before you label me prosperity gospel. <laughs> Let's hear me out here. Okay. This, this, I think, can start because God is the happiest being on the planet and in the universe. John gives us a good definition of God. If we define God, what is God? Who is God? God is love, right? I would say joy or happiness is the, is the uh, resolute completion of love. So in, in a marriage, if my wife and I, Kristen, if we just said we love each other, but we've never once felt happiness or joy, would you actually think that's love? No, that's a commitment. It's, yes, I, I made some vows I made some promises, I'm a man of my word, so I'm gonna do this, I'm gonna grit my teeth and get through it. But no, <laughs> that's not it, thank, thank God that's not it. That we've actually created memories and happiness and a child together. That every day, my love with Kristen is felt in happiness. So God, being love, is the triune, eternal fountain of love and joy. Wow. How he interacts with himself, the three members of the Trinity, is happiness. It is delight. I actually, I like the word delight even a little better because it's like, we, we know we can like, delight in a good meal and it's like, this is a good thing. Like, we had a Passover dinner here on, on Holy Week, and it was, 
Like, it was, just, it was a good thing. And, we, and like, everyone there delighted in it. And you can tell because there was laughter and joy. Yes, it was love. But it was happiness. And that wasn't shallow. Because God is happy and that's not shallow. Here's the first one. Psalm 115, 3. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. So that's a little funny because we think of that as more like a sovereignty declaration, which I think it is. He does, God does whatever he wants. No one's stopping him. He can do it. Right. That is sovereignty. But what's interesting is that he does whatever he pleases. If you were able to do whatever you pleased and nothing could ever stop you, you will actually feel that happiness. Now, granted, since we're humans, we have some restrictions there, and that's probably what we have, like when we see celebrities kind of, you know, doing their celebrity thing, and we're just like, oh, celebrities, right? Like Tom Brady can go to Tampa Bay and just win another Super Bowl and throw a yacht party as his parade, and that's just, that's just good with him. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm not bothered. Like, he can do whatever he wants. He's happy, right? Seven Super Bowls. Is that seven? Six, I don't know, lost count. So we think that of happiness, but God has that to an infinite degree. Remember, Tom Brady gets to experience that grain and wine abounding. That's a shadow. God is the one who does whatever he pleases. That's the overflowing fountain of joy because of pleasure, because he's doing the things that makes him happy. And that main thing is the glory of God, that he would send Jesus, and Jesus would glorify his Father on this earth, ultimately in giving up his life, that he says there's no greater love than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. And so that, that happiness is completed in the suffering of Jesus. And that's where I kind of I want to bring us back to Okay, this isn't, this isn't like us being up in the clouds. <laughs> this isn't us uh, forcing happiness. This is actually like a real encounter with the person of Jesus. And it's also not forced upon you. You must be happy. We're going to get into some of these, because God, he does, he does command us to delight in him. And we're going to talk a little bit about what that would look like. Uh, but let's not get ahead of ourselves. Hebrews 1, 8 and 9 says, but of the Son, so he's talking about Jesus, and the, the writer of Hebrews kind of lays out this like sweet uh, opener of how phenomenal Jesus is. And so actually, I'm just going to read it because that's like, <laughs> that is good stuff. All right, Hebrews 1. Starting in verse 5. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, which he brings the firstborn into the world, says, Let all God's angels worship him. 
And of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of, your, of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. So he says, of Jesus, you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Good job. Therefore, God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond anyone else matched in the universe. Beyond any spirits, principalities, demons, anything that could possibly give you a drop of happiness. Saying the Father has anointed Jesus to be the ultimate pinnacle of gladness. And in Matthew 3, we get a cool little glimpse, a real glimpse of the Trinity when Jesus is baptized, the heavens open up, and the Father says, this is my Son with whom I am well pleased. He makes me happy. When I take pleasure in something, that thing is making me happy. That's what the Father is doing all of Jesus' time on earth. Because he loved righteousness. He hated wickedness. And the Father says, I love that. I'm going to roll with that. Isaiah 42, a prophecy of Jesus says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. God is delighting in Jesus. The Father is delighting in Jesus. And then, last one on this God is happy point. 1 Timothy 1.11. Now this, this actually is kind of worthy of a more unpacking, but I just want to skip it real quick. It says, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have entrusted. So blessed, I would encourage you just to do like a quick search in a Greek accordance or however you might do more deeper Bible study. But blessed is actually often associated with happiness. So blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my behalf. Jesus is actually saying there's a happiness there that you can actually experience. And for as crazy as that sounds, look at Acts. Was his disciples took that as reality when they went away rejoicing because they were found worthy enough to be beaten. So his disciples thought that was happy. <laughs> And I think we're, we kind of back away from that a little bit. Like, there's, there's no way that can make me happy. I don't know either. <laughs> I'm just telling you what I'm seeing in Scripture right here. Because I haven't felt that. I've never been beaten for persecution. But the same thing happens with the early church when Paul tells them, I think it's in Corinthians, he says, you rejoice at the plundering of your property. That's where I'm saying there's more to be unpacked there, because <laughs> I can't do that tonight. And this is where I want to bring us back to childlikeness. So Jesus 
says some threatening and damning words to people who hurt children is that it is better for them that a millstone would be tied around their neck and they would be thrown into water. I can't remember the exact phrasing of it. And that's what I want to draw to the gravity of how important it is that we capture back our happiness and joy in him. Because if you are a boring Christian, people won't want to become like a boring Christian. If we want to go and make disciples of the world, we're not going to make disciples by saying, hey, come be miserable with us. And that actually, that's, even if that were the case, even if that were true, it doesn't reflect who God is. Because as we did a brief skim over, God is the overflowing fountain of joy and love. And the closer we get to that, the more we're going to be like it. I get more C.S. Lewis because I'm a good Taylor grad. <laughs> so this is uh, a note on praise, talking about his wrestle before he actually converted uh, to Christianity. And his hang-up was that God clearly commands in Scripture that we are to praise him. He tells us. And what kind of a person does that? Right? What kind of person tells us to praise him? Okay, here's what he says. I'm just going to, I'm reading this. It's, a, it's lengthy, but I put it up here because it's just, he says it better than I could. He says, the most obvious fact about praise, whether of God or anything, strangely escaped me. I thought of it in terms of compliment, approval, or giving of the honor. I had never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise unless, sometimes, even if, shyness or the fear of boring others is deliberately brought into check. So yes, I have totally been, been there where he was. Like, to praise something, I just thought, like, hey, good job tonight. Like, you led that song well. Nick sounded great. You know, like, general stuff. I'm, also, I'm a high school teacher, so, like, generally, I'm trying to encourage my students. So it's like, the praise is, like, you know, trying to, it's, it's an act I do to try to get them to do better in school, right? <laughs> uh, but that is just, if this is praise, that right there is what I'm doing. So here it is. He keeps going. The world rings with praise. Lovers praising their mistresses, readers their favorite poet, walkers praising the countryside, players praising their favorite game, praise of weather, wines, dishes, actors, motors, horses, colleges, countries, historical personages, children, flowers, mountains, rare stamps, rare beetles, now it's like, like Bitcoin and stuff, even sometimes politicians or scholars. I had not noticed how the humblest and at the same time most balanced, and I forget how to pronounce that word, I had to look it up earlier, capacious, thank you, Lisa. <laughs> I had not noticed how at the same time the most balanced and capacious minds praised the most. And that was like an, an open mind. The most balanced and humble minds praised the most. While the cranks, misfits, and malcontents praised least. I had not noticed either that just as men spontaneously praise whatever they value, so they spontaneously urge us to join them in praising it. Isn't she lovely? Wasn't it glorious? Don't you think that magnificent? 
The psalmist and telling everyone to praise God are doing what all men do when they speak of what they care about. My whole more general difficulty about the praise of God depended on my absurdly denying to us as regards the supremely valuable God. What we delight to do, what indeed we can't help doing, and about everything else we value. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete till it is expressed. And I think we all know through experience that that is just so true, right? <laughs> like if, if I were not allowed to tell you about my wife, like you would have, you would have no grid for my love for her. Right? Yeah. And same, I've already referenced sports, and Melissa Winters is keeping track for how many times I do this, I know. My favorite baseball team started like 6-1 and one this week, and I was ecstatic because we've been terrible for 20 years. <laughs> and what am I doing? I'm texting my friends from back home. Like, yes, these, they're doing great. I, I, I believed in him this whole time. Come on, I didn't expect that. Like, you know, like all this stuff. And it's like, it's genuine joy. However shallow it is, right, it's still genuine. But in praising, it made me actually happier about the situation. It puts on my mind the things that I really believe are true, and in a shallow instance, it's a baseball team, but in a real instance, it's how good my God is. If I don't think he's good in a moment, what do I gotta do? I gotta praise him. I gotta take reality that I know is true, that I know it has to, like I can't be the, the sole communicator and discoverer of all things true on this earth, so I gotta trust something else. And that is that God has revealed himself in Jesus as a good God who is graceful and merciful to us that he would call us sons and daughters. So then at this point, it's like, okay, what am I even, why am I even talking about joy? Because that reason alone, I don't need to tell you, go be joyful, right? Like, like that may, some of you may have even been like kind of put off at the beginning, like kind of feeling out the waters here. It's like, because the point really is not to try to be happy. The point is that we would see how good God is that, duh, you're going to be happy. <laughs> like, to, to the point where the disciples in Acts rejoiced that they were found worthy to be beaten for the sake of Jesus. That is where we're going. That is the degree of happiness that is available. This is where God wants to take out your burnout. He wants to take away that robbed childlikeness. He wants to take away sin addictions. He wants to take away offenses in our heart where we can't fall asleep at night because we're thinking about what we should have said to that person or what we would say to them now. 
This is where, when we get a better picture of God, those things become completely unimportant. And why is that? Because they are cast away by God. There's a song I love. It's, it's called Sins or Stones. The, the verse is basically saying he has all of our sins are stones at the bottom of your ocean. And the ocean is, I looked at a little visual, because again, I'm a high school teacher. Looked at the visual of the ocean. Mount Everest goes, goes like 10% down into the ocean. <laughs> That's how deep the ocean is. And he views our sins. And even the sins of others that have wronged us as those. That we are not bound by that anymore. We are now bound by something higher. That we are seated with him. And again, who's the happy God? <laughs> if we are seated with him, this is the kind of picture that we want to see. We don't see an angry God who... Uh, is upset with how you're not doing the right things every day and all week and stuff or you know fill in the blank of things that we are very quick to get angry about I bet God has a different perspective on it now he does get angry it's a very important point to note but why does he get angry because we're not experiencing or someone's taking something away from the joy that could be had in him that's why Jesus speaks that word about the childlikeness and how harsh of a punishment Jesus is actually saying to people who rob children of their childlikeness. And what would I say childlikeness is? Childlikeness is joy. Like, Chris and I took our nine-month-old daughter to the swing set for the first time in her life. And I mean, she's just, <laughs> like, just flapping around, like, making noises. You may have heard her in the front. Her middle name's Joy, so that, I think, is actually something that God told us to do with her. And it's like, that is, it's just, it's pure. And when there's purity, there's happiness. There's actual delight. So when God tells us to delight in him, or tells us to praise him. What he's actually doing is saying, be happy in me. Take pleasure in me. Be glad that you were once alienated, hostile towards God, and he has brought you into his domain, into his kingdom. And there are a million reasons to be happy about that. It's one of my favorite passages. Well, not even passages, just a quick thing. Matthew 13, Jesus compares the kingdom of heaven. He says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy, went and sold all he had and bought that field. I'm, I'm just imagining some... Israeli farmer just dancing down the road <laughs> with everything that he has to sell because of what he knows he's about to get. So are we going to say, no, that wasn't real happiness? <laughs> no. 
The treasure made him happy. God is our treasure. Psalm 16.3 says, As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. In whom God has all of his delight in you, in the saints. Psalm 18, he brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. So this says God did a thing because it gave him delight. And that thing is good for us. <laughs> so God wasn't trying to like punish us. Like the, the good news, one of the good news of the gospel is that like the good thing that God wants to do to us also is good to us. <laughs> he rescued me because he delighted in me. And that's why I think it's, it's worth it to go and evangelize the world. It's worth it to ask your friend or family member who you know doesn't follow God about what they think about Jesus. Because what they're missing out on is the best delight we can experience. Psalm 35, let those who delight in my righteousness shout for joy and be glad and say evermore, great is the Lord who delights in the welfare of a servant. So the psalmist here just, just praises. <laughs> great is the Lord who delights in our welfare. That he wants to do good. Worship team, would you come up? I want to I make a note here. And this is also kind of like a possible spinoff for, like, yes, there's way more to be talked about here and preached here, and I'm not going to do it right now, unfortunately. <laughs> uh, this is a note on suffering. And again, this kind of goes back to what would be an easy opposition to this idea. That, yes, what about suffering? I'm not happy when I suffer. Yes, I understand that. I have not been either. <laughs> okay. Uh, here is what the Bible directs us as to how Jesus suffered. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great cloud of witnesses, who, Hebrews 11, also was all about suffering, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The reason Jesus died on the cross was for the joy set before him. And that joy was that he would be glorified in us being restored in him. So, like I said, there's more to be unpacked there with suffering. But that, that quick note is that God is in the long haul with us. And that's part of his goodness. That's part of the reason we get to celebrate. 
is that if Jesus, who died over 2,000 years ago, not over, what year are we in? It is, I'm getting old. <laughs> 2,000 years ago, concluded, yes, the joy to be united in the kingdom of God, where death will be no more and tears will be no more, is worth it to die, go through an excruciating death right now, then that gives us a great picture of how to suffer well. And at the center of it is joy. So the center of my delight and my choosing to have a great meal and my choosing to suffer well and embrace hardship is the same. That I would delight in God because he delights in us. I want you guys to stand. This is where I think he, he wants to restore that childlikeness. God, would you reveal a place in our heart where our, our childlikeness was robbed? And when I try to abide with you in that place, it is hard. there's something, I encourage you just to put your hands out in front of you. If you don't have anything, it's totally fine. And ask Jesus, what do you want me to do with this? to do with this robbed childlikeness. Doesn't need to be extravagant. But what I do think the Lord wants to do it shows you that there is so much more joy on the other side of this. That in doing whatever he's leading you to do, it could be as simple as just turning your hands over or it could be apologizing to whoever. What he wants to replace with this is joy, is gladness is delight in his realities of his goodness. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. God, we want to worship right now in that spirit.
that you have taken these things that once robbed us and you turn them to redemption, to gold, to gladness, that it no longer binds me. Thank you, Lord. Let's worship.